Welcome back, guys and gals. You are listening to the Northern Miner Podcast, and I'm your host, Matthew Keevil. As usual, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do hop over to yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And this is episode 66 for the week of July 3rd, 2017. So first and foremost, uh, happy Canada Day long weekend. I hope you had a great one with family and friends uh, out there on the lake, uh, hiking, biking, canoeing, uh, all those great Canadian activities for which we are so well known. Uh, let's be honest, drinking beer and playing ball hockey. That happened for sure. Uh, but I uh, hope everyone had a great long weekend. And uh, for those on exp- uh, extended vacations, I know there are many of you, please do enjoy those. I, I am jealous. Uh, but And do think of tuning into the Northern Minor Podcast while you're on the beach and the kids are running around screaming, etc. But we wish everyone the greatest summer um and for our neighbors obviously south of the border happy independence day uh july 4th uh, i'm assuming there's gonna be some banging firecrackers down there should be a great time but let's move on ahead with the show which uh it's a bit of an abridged episode this week because as our loyal listeners will know i'm heading up to the yukon uh at the end of the week uh for the yukon media tour which i tend to do once a year uh leslie and myself uh, are splitting it this year uh so i'll be up there i believe the 8th to the 12th uh ending with the dawson city mining conference well we will be recording a podcast and then leslie will be taking over for the final leg so you're going to hear from both of us uh on that little adventure um but uh this week uh filling in sort of for the stead I have some more audio from our Canadian mining symposium in London and this is one of the more exciting ones uh, they're all pretty actually really good as I've gone through them and done a little bit of editing and post-production I've realized how much good uh, commentary was done at the event and uh, so how many great topics were uh, tackled in terms of things like innovation and sustainability and stuff uh, which are really becoming you know really hot button uh, issues for our industry moving ahead here but this one this week is actually awesome um what I have here is uh, David Garofalo from Goldcorp and uh, Kelvin Dushinitsky from Barrick talking with uh, moderator Greg Huffman, who is the Managing Director and Global Head of Mining Sales at Canaccord Genuity. Uh, this is a great wide-ranging discussion that touches on a lot of important topics. Uh, some of them I have mentioned, including things like innovation, water usage, exploration, um, and partnerships on large-scale projects, which is something you've probably heard a lot of the larger-scale gold companies talking about. Uh, we've seen the recent partnerships uh, between Barrick and Gold Corp, uh, Kinross, uh, Shandong. Uh, they talk about all that stuff in the segment. Um, in addition, we do get to hear a little bit about funding exploration um, and how Gold Corp and Barrick view their investments uh, and partnerships with juniors. Uh, so it's a really great little segment that we will run uh, just sort of to round out the show. But first, of course, I will do our touch of macro. We'll talk about a few things uh, that caught the uh, caught my eye on the headlines this week, uh, and then we will move on through with the Barrick and Gold Corp segment, uh, and that will just sort of round out the show for us. Uh, and then uh, next week, hopefully, we'll have uh, some uh, exclusive content from my Yukon tour uh, that we can run, and uh, Leslie should be back uh, with the Geology Corner uh, in the next couple weeks, hopefully next week, but maybe the week after. So that's sort of what our scheduling is looking like in, in terms of recording and having people in office as we run around on our site visits. And upwards and onwards towards our touch of macro for the week. As noted, it is U.S. Independence Day, July 4th. Uh, Today, spot gold continued to head lower towards eight-week lows. Uh, Spot prices were sitting at $1,219 per ounce at the time of recording, despite a perceived easing in the U.S. dollar, uh, as well as news overnight that North Korea reported a successful intercontinental ballistic missile test. So we are seeing that sociopolitical volatility, which provided a little early morning bump in gold, though we still closed down. 
Furthermore, total gold ETFs were down 357,000 ounces yesterday. Uh, Scotiabank's analyst group recently sent over an updated price deck for gold, uh, which it noted uh, continues to expect gold to face some near-term headwinds from a quote-unquote rising yield environment. But gold should be supported by, as we mentioned, that moderating U.S. dollar. Uh, Scotiabank forecasts a relatively flat average gold price through 2018 of $1,250 per ounce. Uh, in the group's view, the current political risk environment is supportive of gold, uh, but it is also likely to trigger significant near-term volatility. Uh, longer term, Scotiabank uh, sees a rising all-in costs and shorter mine lives, supporting a higher gold price of $1,300 per ounce for 2019 and beyond. Uh, no changes were made to the silver price uh, at all. So silver in the price deck remained static. Uh, meanwhile, the base metal and industrial metal complex was largely down or roughly flat across the board. Uh, the sell-off was being led by nickel, uh, where weakening demand is the name of the game. Uh, it closed at $4.15 per pound. Uh, furthermore, a recent jump in copper prices was tempered by news that London Metal Exchange stocks uh, rose 28,600 tons to start the week. Trading activity in the iron ore market finally slowed down, with spot prices coming off a little after a recent positive up trend. Uh, perhaps this is a needed correction, Scotiabank notes, given prices have increased by $10 per ton uh, from $55 a ton to $65 per ton over the past week. Uh, the market was essentially impacted by weakening Ferris futures markets, which saw traders looking to offer at fixed prices. Uh, the spot seaborne coke and coal price continued its march upwards overnight, uh, with higher op offers actually being met by trade. Sentiment remains positive for now. Uh, market participants are currently unsure as to when or at what point prices will actually peak. Scotiabank notes that Chinese demand remains solid but not extraordinary, as mills continue to look for clues in the domestic market. And speaking of updated price decks on precious metals, let us crack forward with our Gold Corp and Barrick segment, wherein uh, David Garofalo and Kelvin Jusnitsky cover a wide variety of topics um, on sort of where they see their company going and how they feel about a few deals they've made recently, including one major one together, which uh, I won't spoil it. I'll let, uh, let this run. Uh, and this is sort of me saying goodbye for the week as well. I'm hoping to be back next week after my trip up to the Yukon, uh, but I will run this segment and uh, we'll sort of end the show on it. Um, and then hopefully we'll be back next week with a bunch more exclusive content from a my yukon tours and some other things we have on the go uh so this is me signing off for the week and uh, hopefully if i would do i'll see some people up there in the yukon uh, do some interviews and have a great time um and then hopefully as well that we'll have uh, a lot of really great exclusive content moving forward uh so this is matthew keevil signing off for the week thanks again for listening to the northern miner podcast both of you I'll start with Dave um, in terms of the the um, the attributes that Canadians bring to the mining sector how would you say Canadians are, are, are different or what else do we bring to the table that maybe separates us a little bit from uh, some of the uh, some of the other mining nations out there well we do have a long mining history and, and more importantly I think there's a an infrastructure that comes with that and I'm talking about a professional infrastructure I'm not just talking about physical infrastructure um, that we're able to export, you know, whether it's um, uh, banking expertise, um, legal expertise, financial expertise um, that we've developed over uh, well over a century of mining within Canada. 
and accessing capital, uh, risk capital to put the work in the sector, predominantly within our home country, but we've been exporting that actually quite significantly over the last 30 years or so, particularly as Latin America opened up for investment. We were one of the first countries to rush in and develop, um, for example, the Chilean copper sector, and that brought a whole new level of expertise uh, to Canada um, that I think is, is the envy of, of the industry. Great. And, and Kelvin, in terms of your, your thoughts there? I, I agree. I, I think I touched on some of that this morning as well. I, mm -hmm. I, uh, David has a point. It's, it's more than the infrastructure exists, the, the services exist, the stock exchange, which we talked about this morning, and the predominance of, of publicly listed companies actually trade on, on the Toronto Stock Exchange. But it's more than that, just culturally, kind of familiarity with the space. Um, you know, there, Canada was mining before Canada was a country. And so in, in some ways, I think you can equate you know, Canada and mining, it's a little bit like Italy with sports cars in the fashion industry. You don't get that overnight. And, um, and from our perspective, I think it's equally important that we protect it. Um, and so kind of maintaining the brand is really important. I think the one other piece I'd add is that um, there's a strong element of, of support from both the Canadian government and our ability to kind of wrap ourselves in the Canadian flag. Um, we found that to be extremely effective, you know, as we operate abroad in particular. So, so those are all things that are part of the mix. When it comes to CSR, um, it's all about water. Um, and I think as an industry, we could certainly be a lot less water intensive than we are. I think um, that's a source of significant social conflict. It's um, an impediment to getting both the social license to operate and, and get projects permitted. I think it's the biggest factor in the space. And I think as an industry, technologically, we need to make uh, significant advancements in terms of reducing our water consumption in order to enhance our ability to develop projects. I, that is by far the biggest impediment to developing projects. It causes uh, untold conflict with uh, surrounding communities, even if you have the perception of utilizing scarce water resources within the communities, even if that's not true, if, if the perceptions you're using or competing for scarce water resources against, for example, agricultural activity, um, you are not going to get the social license to operate. And we've seen examples of that time and again um, in our space, and, and um, given how difficult it is for us to replace reserves, if we don't attack that the water use within our industry, uh, it's going to be very difficult for us to perpetuate our businesses in the long run. Very good point. Um, Kelvin, maybe, maybe along the same lines, um, well, to both of you, uh, recently you've partnered on the Cerro Casale and Caspiche, um, obviously a very water sensitive area there as well. Do you see some synergies by putting those two projects together um, that you're going to be able to sort of uh, uh, optimize both from a permitting but as well as from a, from a water and, and just cost-wise as well? Yeah, we certainly hope so. I mean, that's the, the purpose of us coming together on, on Cerro Casale and, and um, you know, we're enthusiastic about the new partnership. Um, we think that Gold Corp will bring some fresh perspectives and thinking and, and potentially energy to, the, uh, to that situation. Cirque Sally is interesting in that we have water rights that, that are important water rights um, uh, related to a, a particular aquifer and without getting the technical details, but, but that's something that, that's relatively rare. And I agree with Dave. I think that um, water could certainly be the industry's Achilles heel if, if we don't manage it carefully. Um, just to touch back though for a second, I think that your, your first question was around Canada and you know, how are we perceived and, and how, do we, um, how do we operate from a CSR perspective. I think generally speaking, um, I think the, the country is, is perceived well. Um, I think that a recent example of that are other countries that are adopting, you know, the Mine Association of Canada is something called Towards Sustainable Mining. And other jurisdictions are now adopting TSM as, as, as a framework for their own use. And I think that's very positive and reflects well on, on Canadian companies. But, but I agree with you. I think water is, is, is essential. Um, we actually just 
over the last year, we've, we've hired and, and put in place a, a VP for water, dealing with both kind of near-term environmental-related issues, but looking out over the longer term in terms of policy and other issues that, that could affect us, you know, both as a company and, and as an industry more generally. Yeah, I, I think first things first, you actually have to make an investment case, and that's probably the biggest impediment uh, to raising capital for opportunities is actually finding the opportunities that generate an adequate rate of return to attract the capital. And, and um, as an industry, uh, we are facing a uh, reserve cliff. Um, over the last five years in the gold sector, we've seen a one-third decline in our reserves, and unless you think it's because we're using lower gold price assumptions, that's actually not true. It probably accounts for about 30% of that decline. 70% is simply depletion. We haven't been investing back into the ground, not only in exploration, but in terms of de-risking projects, bringing them to the pipeline, and actually making that investment case to track financing. Capital's out there if you can demonstrate an adequate rate of return, but we haven't de-risked large-scale projects sufficiently to replace uh, what, what we're depleting. And if you look at production prospectively, um, by our own admission, the industry is shrinking production by about 15 to 20% over the ensuing five years. Um, and that's because the reserve decline is the leading edge of that. Um, obviously, production will decline if reserves declining. Um, so as an industry, we have to start to collaborate more. Um, none of us should take on our, our shoulders individually uh, the responsibility for reversing that downward trajectory in reserves. We have to collaborate to bring meaningful projects forward. And those projects are declining in grade. The average mine grade today at a gram a ton is about half of what it was 15 years ago. So we have to do bulk tonnage, bigger equipment, to deliver those economies of scale and make those lower grade deposits economic. But none of us need to take on that capital risk ourselves, nor the project risk, technical risk. So the model we're pursuing with tech at Nueva Union, the model we're pursuing with, with Barrick at Maracunga, is one that we have to pursue going forward to share the financial and technical risk across well-capitalized partners. So we avoid uh, the Sudbury's, the Nevada's, and for that matter, the Red Lakes of the world where we're building, we built duplicative infrastructure on the same deposits and massively destroyed capital. And that drove away investors from, from the industry. And I'd say I'm encouraged by the fact that we have a new generation of CEOs in the space over the last four or five years that have a different mindset, that are taking that capital discipline, uh, bringing it to bear within the sector where traditionally that hasn't been the case. Yeah, I think you've hit on a really important point. I want to uh, Kelvin's response as well, just in terms of partnership. Kelvin, you, you, Barrick's gone through and you know and, and partnered up on a number of assets here over the course of the last eighteen months. Maybe you can talk a little bit just about how you go through the the evaluation of prospective partners for various assets. In terms of partners, um, we look at, for every partnership we've taken on. So, for example, I mentioned this morning we sold half of our Zaldivar mine to Antofagasta because we had a view that they could probably, even though we thought we were running it well. We had the view that they should probably be able to run it better than we could, given the synergies, their, you know, their, their long history and understanding of operating in, in Chile. Just like if they had a single asset in Nevada, we should probably be able to run that mine better than they could based in, in Santiago. And, and that's turned out to be the case. Um, I, I talked about our partnership this morning with Shandong and why we went into that agreement, partly Veladero, partly potentially Pascualama, partly beyond that. And likewise with Goldcorp, we think that they're going to bring a lot to the equation at Cerro Casale, and there's synergies with their other activities in Chile. And so in every instance, we're looking for something strategic in the fit. And if we find that, then it makes sense for us to partner. And if not, we're happy to own the asset in our own. Great. Um, Dave, with a lot of the low-hanging fruit gone, will the next generation of mines come from new discoveries, or is it going to be a new look at old deposits? Um, uh, probably a combination thereof, and I know that's a bit of a cop-out, 
Um, but as, as we see technological advancement, um, and I think the next, next frontier for us is artificial intelligence, driverless vehicles within our minds that drive down labor costs, which is a big component um, of our cost structures, that will allow us to relook at some, some lower grade deposits that may not make the cut right now to replace what we're depleting. And, and maybe along those same lines, um, Kelvin, Barrick's making a big investment in new technology. Uh, what do you see in terms of, you know, the scope of that investment is potentially the most game-changing or, quote-unquote, the disruptive technology that could change our business? Well, I think from our perspective, the starting point was when, when we decentralized the business, and I mentioned this morning, again, sorry to be repetitive for those who were there, but um, what we found was as we kind of cleared away the middle layer between the head office and the mines and increased the flow of communication, of information between the mines and between the mines and, and office, we unclogged the artery. But we also found that while we're in a position to make better decisions, what we were lacking is real-time data to make those decisions with. And so part of our effort over the last, intensively over the last year, has been the digitization of, of, of our, you know, the, um, uh, from the mines all the way through to head office. And it's a process, and it's going to take a while for us to get there. But, but already we're finding the ability to make decisions more quickly, just things like short interval controls, you know, how we move people around, both in the open pit and underground, in a more efficient way than we ever did in the past. Um, small things that really add up, shift over shift, you know, week over week, month over month, we're seeing productivity gains that way. So as a starting point for us, because we were, um, you know, I, I, we probably aren't alone, but I can only speak for our company, we, we weren't advanced in terms of kind of using real-time digital data. We're seeing a breakthrough just in that. Beyond that, other kind of areas of innovation, they've uh, articulated the um, use, use of autonomous, you know, particularly underground is something that will be, uh, be very important for us. More of our mines are likely to be underground mines as we kind of move to the next generation, so it's going to become even more, more, more compelling. Um, but we're, we're kind of applying the, the uh, innovation throughout, you know, from processing, um, better maintenance, and we have a, we call it our code mine, which is a, a, kind of a, a mini Google, if you will, campus where we have kind of code writers working with the mine operators to, to develop apps that just make their day more efficient and easier, and we're already seeing results from that. So it's kind of a combination of things as opposed to kind of a one eureka breakthrough item, I guess is how I characterize it. Great. Um, Dave, while at Ignico and Hud Bay, you had a very effective strategy of actively investing in, in juniors um, with prospective discoveries and, and, and projects that you liked. Uh, is grassroots exploration best left to the juniors and just you know, producers should just focus in, on brownfields in your mind? Or is there a balance? Um, in short, um, the former rather than the latter. I, I, I do think that it requires a different mindset to do grassroots exploration. It's a completely different risk profile, different skill set. I think it is best left to the juniors. Um, it is, uh, I think, the highest risk component uh, of value creation within our industry. Um, and you know, portfolio theory tells you when you have risk, diversify it. Um, and and um, our our strategy, at, again, as you mentioned, at Ignico, Hud Bay, and now Gold Corp is really to diversify that exploration risk through, through the juniors. And, and that also provides you an opportunity to leverage management in jurisdictions and districts that perhaps you don't have expertise in. Um, give them the capital, and if they're successful, uh, re-up. If they're not, then um, cycle the capital into another opportunity. And that gives you um, some steady optionality in your pipeline, uh, to populate your pipeline over time. And I guess, you know, for, for either of you, you know, that's, 
it's an interesting strategy to invest in juniors as your you know future pipeline potential of potential new projects but i guess when we get extended downturns like we've just come out of how is a better is there a better way where we can maintain the the junior uh, expiration spend through that or you know are we a little bit at the whims of the market from that perspective Look, what I would say is um, um, I think we complement the market. Um, when the juniors are able to access the capital markets, um, uh, you know, we tend to have less engagement with them, and which is fine. I mean, we can still watch them from afar, but it's good to be able to act as a bit of a merchant bank when the capital markets aren't there. And, and recently, that really hasn't been the case, not for all juniors. I think it's been the market's been a bit surgical in terms of what, where they'll allocate capital in the junior space, and we've been able to fill the breach, and that's given us direct exposure uh, some very good management teams and some very prospective ground. And Kelvin, what's your strategy with respect to investing in juniors? Well, I think, uh, Kamish, first of all, we, we've announced just in the last, I'm trying to remember, it's probably the last 18 months, um, three particular investments, um, most recently um, with uh, ATAC in the Yukon, before that with Cisco in northern Quebec, and before that with Alicanto in Guyana. And we like all three of those um, opportunities. And th the approach we're taking, though, is, is uh, it's certainly not going to be a, a shotgun approach. And we spent a lot of time kind of evaluating the management teams. Uh, we're we're um, very pleased with the exploration groups that are on the ground and, and our ability to help participate in the program as opposed to being passive in that respect. So you should expect to see more of that from us. But at the same time, you know, we've increased our budget both for brownfield and greenfield exploration. And part of that's because of the results we received um, at Gold Rush, which I mentioned earlier, uh, Nevada, uh, Alturas in uh, Chile, and potentially extending to Del Carmen in Argentina. Our finding cost is about $25 an ounce. And so, you know, from that perspective, we're going to continue to push along on, on both fronts. How do we ensure that Canada remains a global sector leader in, in gold mining? Um, I, I think it's hard to kill. I mean, I, I know there was a lot of consternation over the fact that the base metal sector consolidated quite dramatically, uh, as you correctly pointed out, about 10 years ago. But it's like chopping off the top of a hedge, it grows back. Um, and, and there's that entrepreneurial class within the mining space in Canada that's second to none. Uh, I don't know of as robust a junior sector as there is in Canada. And that's helped regenerate the industry in a significant way, even after massive consolidation like that. And I think that's true in the gold space as well. Calvin, any thoughts on... And I think Dave answered that very well. I think it's in our, our DNA, and uh, you know it's up to us to protect it and um, and to uh, promote it. But I think that um, you know we're, we have the pole position, and I think we'll continue to keep it. 